This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. So if you didn't notice, there was no Fresh Tracks Weekly last week, which makes it not so weekly. But I was really busy and I was trying to catch up on some projects that have kind of fallen behind. So it was good to switch it up for a week and, and work on those. I did have a pretty busy last few days. Myself and Kara have been very busy processing meat. One of our freezers went down, and so we had about 200 pounds of meat that had started to thaw in our garage. But luckily it was cold enough that all of the meat was fine. Um, but we used it as an excuse to kind of take everything out and process it into some ready-to-eat meals and jerky and summer sausage on this stuff that's ready to grab and go. So it was a good excuse to finally get a lot of that done. I think we ended up with about 70 pounds of burgers that we turned into jerky, another 60 pounds of whole muscle jerky, 45 pounds of summer sausage. I made a bunch of biscuits and gravy for the crew, uh, made some pre-made breakfast burritos for upcoming turkey season. It was a good time, it was a lot of work. I gotta say the made with meat stuff that we have is pretty, pretty handy. It came in clutch. We had the 10 trade dehydrator which was super nice for the jerky. A hot tip on that, if you spray those dehydrator trays with uh, some cooking spray of some kind beforehand, the jerky just slides right off instead of having to peel it off. Learned that one from Kara, super smart girl there. And then being able to mix 30 pounds of meat at a time uh, for the ground meat stuff, the summer sausage was so handy. And then uh, with the sausage stuffer, and chamber vac to seal it all up, it was pretty sweet. We have a lot of cured meat and a lot of pre-made meals ready to roll for spring hunts. So excited about that. But Michael has been fishing a bunch. So of course we got to go check in with him and see what he's got going on. Hey guys, it's Michael, episode 35, Fresh Tracks Weekly. Welcome back to the fishing corner. It's been a couple weeks. A couple weekends ago, what did we do? We went and fished the Upper Madison with my girlfriend Cassie and her sister and the fishing was amazing. We saw a lot of fish coming up to midges on top and eating dry flies. We caught most of our stuff sub subsurface. Following day, went to the Missouri with one of my really good friends, Taylor. And we had a good time up near the dam, but the rest of the float was meh. We got stuck on the boat ramp twice. It was kind of a rodeo. I got a new transducer and like fishing graph for my boat so i'm learning all this electrical hardware and all this crap that i have no idea what i'm doing um but that's kind of what i'm up to right now tied some flies for my dad and i'm giving it to him for his 60th birthday and hopefully gonna get out this weekend and do some fishing but spring doesn't ever want to leave here in montana i was looking at the extended forecast and we don't have a day over 40 in the next two weeks so <sighs> That's the way she goes. Checking out these lakes right now, trying to see which ones are open. I just found out about this cool little centennialhub.com. You can like query these satellite imagery things. It's pretty sweet. So looks like a lot of these lakes are still ice capped and I'm looking forward to some open water. Thanks for joining me in the fishing corner today. Back to you, Marcus. With that, let's jump into some news. We've talked a lot about chronic wasting disease in the past and how it continues to be a growing concern across the country. And a lot of funding and effort is being funneled into various projects. And we're starting to hear more about these projects and learning about new methods of detection. The National Deer Association recently put out an article that shows three new detection methods that are pretty interesting. The first one that they highlighted was a thing called RT-Quick. It's basically some really fancy biochemistry that's way over my head, but they're able to detect CWD at extremely low levels. 
Uh, this researcher located deer scrapes and sampled licking branches as well as the soil beneath it. Of the 99 scrapes that they sampled, they were able to detect CWD prions in 54 of them, which seems like a lot to me. They didn't note what the prevalence rate for that particular area in Tennessee was, but regardless, that seems like uh, a lot. Uh, so hopefully this could be a good tool for monitoring. Wildlife agencies would be able to use it to test scrapes and see if they detect CWD. The second study that they highlighted, researchers sampled for CWD on deer feeders using the same RT-Quick method. And what they found was that CWD prions seemed to be more effectively held on surfaces such as stainless steel and glass that can often be found on deer feeders. It sounded to me like these researchers were a little cautious with making any hard claims yet, but to me, it sounds like a really solid management option would to be limiting or restricting deer feeders uh, if you wanna limit the spread of CWD. The third study looked into the use of working dogs to detect and smell CWD prions in deer poop. Their results were imperfect, but it did show that dogs were able to alert on positive CWD samples more often than not. So while it might not be perfect, the dogs could still be a valuable tool for detecting spread of CWD on the edges of outbreak zones. And then they could come in and double check with the RT-Quick method. Interesting stuff for sure. And I'm sure there's a lot more that's about to come out with all of the effort that's continually going into this. In Alaska, the Willow Project was recently approved to drill for oil on Alaska's North Slope in the 23 million acre National Petroleum Reserve Alaska. The project has been in the works for years and the Department of Interior has been assessing how to balance economical viability with reducing the footprint and impact on the land. The end result was an approval of three of the five proposed drilling sites while also negotiating to have ConocoPhillips surrender 68,000 acres of their existing leases. The positive results from the viewpoint of proponents of this project will be up to 180,000 barrels of oil per day, 2,500 jobs during the construction of this, 300 long-term jobs, and generating billions of dollars in royalties and tax revenues for federal, state, and local governments. Negative effects from the critics' point of view on this project are largely in the form of environmental degradation, disturbance to wildlife, land, and water. They estimate that there will be an increased carbon emissions of 239 metric tons as a result of this project, and it'll impact 80 to 90 bird species, caribou, grizzly, and polar bears. Many people are particularly concerned about the impacts to caribou calving grounds and migration routes and the destruction of wetlands. But regardless, this project is happening and this is often the cost of progress. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. In Utah, an update on the House Bill 469, which was to make a year-round hunting season for mountain lions, has been signed into law by Governor Cox. Interestingly, this is one of the very few times where I've seen the Humane Society and hunting conservation groups on the same side of an argument. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over the next few years because mountain lions are smart and they likely won't be wiped out from this. Uh, but by taking management away from the states and removing science-based practices, it could lead to some unintended consequences. Time will tell. We mentioned in a past episode that state agencies are beginning to implement more rules and regulations for shed antler hunting. Legislators in Idaho are now proposing a bill to give the Fish and Game Commission the ability to set shed hunting seasons. The bill itself would not impose a shed hunting season, but rather just give the commission the authority to set the seasons. It would allow for the ability to make different seasons for individual species, deer, elk, moose, and antelope. I wonder how many people go out looking for antelope sheaths. Maybe that's a thing. Let me know. Anyway, this bill seems to have quite a bit of support. We'll keep an eye on it and see if it passes. And if it does pass, whether the commission will implement shed seasons. In South Dakota, there will now be caps on non-resident archery deer and pronghorn licenses on public land. For years, South Dakota allowed unlimited non-resident archery hunting on public land. 
Many hunters reported overcrowding, reduced quality of hunting, saying that in some units 88% of the archery mule deer harvest was from non-residents. Private land still remains open for unlimited non-resident archery hunting, but on public land it'll be capped at 2,200 deer tags and 450 pronghorn tags. South Dakota seemed to be a little bit behind the curve on this one, as many states have generally tilted the tables heavily towards their residents in terms of tag allocation and quality of hunting, which makes sense. Uh, so South Dakota is starting to adopt those policies as well. In Montana, a bill has been introduced to phase out the pen raised pheasant program that began last year. In a previous episode, we talked about the flaws of this program before it began, and now we have a year to look back and see what the program actually accomplished. Thomas Baumeister wrote a guest piece in the Missoulian compiling some of these results. So the initial pitch was to raise pheasants at the Montana State Prison to be released on state lands to promote youth hunting opportunities. The goal was to produce 50,000 pheasants at $20 a piece, but now that we can look back, we see that the $1 million investment yielded 8,180 birds, 5,730 of them were released, and only half of those were roosters, which means it cost $384 per huntable bird. The birds that were released were mostly tailless and could not fly very well. The only report that I heard of someone running into one of these pheasants in the field, their dog caught it before it could fly. So hunters were critical of the program before it began, and I think they're even more critical of it now. House Bill 826 would phase out the program and give the option to study smarter ways to direct those funds, hopefully something like going towards habitat. With that, we're going into our deeper dive on private land, public access, where we're gonna talk about the various states programs that provide hunter access on private lands, how they work, how they're funded, and what we like and don't like about various programs. I was doing a ghost tour in Butte, and like one of the facts was like, did you know that in this movie Tombstone, what's his name was like, I'll be, everybody thinks it's I'll be your Huckleberry, but it's like I'll be, it's I'll be your Huckleberry, and it's like, in reference to in the, reference to being a bearer of somebody's like casket. That wasn't that like what the line was supposed to be, but then that yeah, actual, every right. he yeah. said Huckleberry, and right. I knew that because of Randy. Yeah, Cassie was like, "How'd you know that?" I was like, "Randy's obsessed with that movie." <laughs> but if you ask Val Kilmer, he will say he used the term Huckleberry, really? not Huckleberry. Huh? Huckleberry. Interesting. Yeah. That's what you learned. You learned that important trivia stuff in Butte, Montana on St. Patrick's Day. It's Butte, America. <laughs> yeah, Butte, America. That's where I was born. <laughs> You're born in Butte? Oh, yeah, Butian. Really? Yeah. You kind of look like Evil Knievel. <laughs> I saw his jail cell. Evil Knievel yeah, was I in a jail cell? Yeah, I thought you Why meant like his, like his where he's born in the Butte Hospital or something. No, I went to the, there's like an underground jail cell in Butte and... I was in his cell, and like, do you know who Evil Knievel was? Yeah, he's a, like a daredevil guy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I didn't know they dare throw him in jail and be. <laughs> he was like, he should have been mayor or something. All right, Anyhow. shall we start <coughs> yeah. this uh, discussion? We're going to talk about private land public access for hunting, uh, and we're going to keep it to a certain number of states just to simplify it. And I'm sure I'm missing some cool programs in a lot of states, but we're going to stick with those states that Randy often discusses uh, as far as, like, the western hunting states. So Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona. Oh, cool. But, I mean, some of them are much more in-depth than others. But anyway, yeah. so I wanted to just do 
similar to what I did on the uh, last discussion where I just give a quick overview of how each state works. Yep. Um, and first off, disclaimer, every state like collects data differently. And so it's hard to really compare. They're, they're just different programs in different states that work in different ways. Um, and they have different goals and are funded differently. And so all the data is like not necessarily comparing apples to apples. Yep. Um, but, and then also there's national level public access programs like the Voluntary Public Access Habitat Incentive Program, which is like a federal level thing. But anyway, I'll start quickly with Montana, which has the block management program. It has 1,200 landowners, 7.1 million acres uh, of private land open to public access. In Montana, we fund it with hunting license dollars as well as PR, Pittman-Robertson dollars. And then there's a few other things that trickle in there as well. Those are the big ones. Okay. So we can get into that later. I think we'll probably... Naturally, we're going to migrate to Montana at the end of this discussion because it's what we're most familiar with, I think. But uh, Idaho has the Access Yes program. They have 350,000 acres of private land and then 525,000 acres of provided access to public land. So they're nearing a million of like what they like to claim is their access. The money comes from multiple different funds, but the big one is the access slash depredation fee, which is $5 for every resident hunting license and $10 for non-residents. Okay, Wyoming has hunter management areas and walk-in areas. They have 68 hunter management areas, 21 walk-in areas, and I couldn't find acreage, but I think we I got it from... I got it. You found it? I okay. sent it to you. 2.6 oh. million acres if you count the 850,000 of accessible public lands that it gains access to. Right. 2.6 million acres, their budget fluctuates plus or minus right around the $1 million a year mark. Yeah. And this is, that's another thing, uh, bouncing to that 2.6, what you're talking about, including the access opened, I think on Montana's seven, this claimed 7.1 million. I don't know if it includes like the gained access, but I'm pretty sure that it includes the like, chunks of public land that are encompassed it's within like, the ranch boundaries usually. Yep. So it's again, it's hard, but like, again, Montana has a ton, like the number is substantially higher than every other state, but, uh, okay. Wyoming, it is funded primarily through donations. So that's like a different funding mechanism. Mm. Uh, yep. it's like the access. Yes. Donations. And there is a Wyoming conservation stamps Stamp. that also go into that. Right. That's the stamp is about, 500,000 a year, so about half of it comes from the stamp, the rest from donations. Right. Okay. So Colorado, they have the private land program. This one, I wish I had more time to research because I'm pretty sure that I found several different stats within their own website. So I'm pretty sure it's 125,000 acres for their 2021 report of private deeded land that was open to public access. But then there's a different thing that said 2 million acres of private land open to public hunting. And so, and but I could not find any elaboration on that 20 million. <laughs> or not 20 million, <laughs> two, sorry, million. 2 million. So I was just like, yeah. I'm, I was very confused by that. But I was just like, I'm pretty sure I found, found multiple sources that said the 125,000. So I'm going to yeah. go with that. I, I think what they're talking about is some of the Colorado programs enrolled in ranching for wildlife. Right. Allow a small portion of the tags go to the public. And so they count that. Gotcha. That would make sense. Yeah. And so that would, that's where it gets fuzzy in uh, New Mexico as well. Yeah. So, okay. 
Uh, the funding for Colorado comes from the habitat stamp and hunting, fishing, license sales, the great Colorado outdoors, and some federal grants. Nevada, they don't really have any public access programs that I could find, nothing major anyway, but Nevada is mostly public land, so pretty low incentive to like create a big program to get private access. Uh, Utah. Utah has what they call walk-in access, and it's the Utah Department of Wildlife Resources leases the land, and they have 246 properties, um, but this includes their WMAs, so it kind of is one of those gray area numbers, and I couldn't find acreage. Some are just for fishing, some are hunting, some are everything. So, Arizona, they heavily utilize the federal VPA, uh, HIP, VPA HIP, right? Right. We made videos about this in the past, but it's like the the federal level funding Habit- habitat uh, improvement program VPA is voluntary public access. Right. Yeah, and so it's basically they, yeah, providing access, but then also incentivizing landowners to manage their land for habitat for wildlife. Is that like CRP? Uh, kind of? In a kind of. Okay. Yeah. But there's a, di- there's a lot, there's a lot of different things. They'll have different, right. they'll fund different projects in like different, right. CR- different ways. CRP does not require access. I'll have, yeah, I was going to say that <laughs> I'll just have to go do a little research and watch our yeah, YouTube videos on it. <laughs> <laughs> like um, if you've seen like the stuff that we were filming with Wade where they were yeah. removing trees and uh, you know, in conifer encroachment, or not conifers, but like the yeah, I got pin, you. And juniper. Yeah, pin and juniper encroachment and improving habitat that way. Um, but and they, Arizona also has the landowner compact, which has a number of different ranches that participate in that, which is at the state level. And that's like managed on a ranch to ranch basis. Um, New Mexico, they have their open gate program, which is 26 different properties that is funded from uh, the hunter or the habitat management and access validation stamp. Yep. We all buy one of those. So in New Mexico, yeah, you buy that. But then they also have, and this one's a complicated one where you probably have to go listen to one of Randy's podcasts to understand more, but they have the E plus and a plus, uh, systems, which yeah. is like, do it's, you want, do you want to take a stab at explaining yeah, it, those? It's yeah. a landowner voucher program where landowners enroll and they get tags to sell to the public and there's either ranch only where you can only hunt on the deeded land and then there's unit wide where very a smaller percentage of the tags go in the unit wide pool but if you are a hunter and you buy the unit wide bro uh tag you can hunt the entire unit not just the deeded acreage and here's the hiccup or trigger a ranch that gets a unit wide tag has to open their ranch to public hunting Right. And so, and then, then that, those tags are in the public draw and that's, it's like a very confusing process, yeah. right? Like <clears throat> those, those tags don't go in the public draw. Well, the, the unit wide ones. The, yeah. Know. Well, but then. But if you draw in the public draw, you, you can go hunt right. one so of they, those ranches enrolled in the unit wide program. So it's like a somewhat of an incentive to open up public access on your ranch. Yeah. But yeah, that one's a complicated one. Go listen to the podcast yeah. with on uh, on Talk Radio. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay, um, so that's like the overview. Mm-hmm. And what I this from researching these, and I'm curious what everyone thinks of like their experience with accessing private land, because that's like a huge issue. I mean, what was it? The National Shooting Sports Foundation big report on hunter access is this like. A major issue. Right. It's the number one reason people hunt less, don't get into hunting, or they quit hunting. 
right. is access to places to hunt. Yeah. And even, and like, and that's where our discussion on just these states is probably not a great, like, conglomerate of all the issues because of so many other states are heavily private land. Right. But I just, you know, we only have so much time and just kind of narrowing it in on this discussion. Yeah. But uh, Randy's, I feel like, very familiar with the Wyoming system. And there's a lot of things you like about the Wyoming system. Yep. I went through Wyoming and Montana because they're the two biggest programs. And I put my pluses and my minuses of each. Uh, The pluses for Wyoming is they get a great return on their investment. Costs them about 40 cents per acre per year. So they get 2.6 million acres for a million bucks. They focus heavily on big game, and uh, even though I don't think it says this in their rules, they try to have some, well, I don't know what you'd call it, some pro rata of the type of properties they're trying to enroll compared to where most of the hunting revenue is coming from. So they don't have tons of upland bird stuff in Wyoming like we do in Montana because most of their revenue comes from big game hunting. So. Right. Uh, I like the way they do that. Um, it does have some dedicated funding source. I wish it had more. Uh, Montana's big plus is its dedicated funding source. Uh, Wyoming has extremely high user satisfaction rates. In that report I sent you, uh, the people who use both the walk-in hunting area and the hunter management areas, the hunters are like really big uh, voters or, or proponents of it. Uh, the other thing is in Wyoming, they make a point to offer a high level of assistance and enforcement from Wyoming Game and Fish to those landowners. Gotcha. Nice. I like it. Yeah. So do they have somebody go out like from F or I guess Game and Fish and like assess these prop, like say I'm a landowner and I want to open up my land for, for hunting and fishing or whatever. Do I contact Wyoming Game and Fish? They come, they send somebody out and like they assess the land and say like, yeah, this is not good because you just have pheasant habitat. They they work with landowners and when we talked to the, some of them, Marcus and I had a call with them. It's a combination of things: is what kind of hunting opportunity do they have? What's the quality of the habitat? And does it help solve some of the management headaches of you know? too many elk tearing down fences or elk and feed stacks or whatever else. So there's a whole combination of things that go into whether or not a property gets enrolled and then can they afford it? Is it a good return on the investment? Yeah, I think, and like from talking with them, it sounded like they, they are still looking for more properties like that. And they don't, it's not like they turn down a lot of properties. It sounded like. Um, And what's it like getting access to those properties? Is it like Montana where you have like your type one type twos or is it like, cause I, I, that's the thing that we think we should break down that I yeah. re, that I really like about Wyoming system. And yeah. so they they have two different main categories that they fall under. And so there's the hunter management areas and then there's the walk-in areas. And the walk-in areas are exactly what it sounds like. You don't really have to sign up. It's this kind of low barrier to entry. You see a sign, there might there's probably yeah. a map associated with it and then you can walk in. Right. And the map has rules like yeah. only cow elk you know, sure. only antelope or uh, all these species, but mm-hmm. the the map for the walk-in area has rules of what you can do. Yeah. Are those species regulated rules? Is that a landowner preference or is that kind of a fishing game? <clears throat> no, um, it's, it's the landowner deciding, 
Or yeah, I think yeah, it some, sounded like they work together. Right. Kinda. I mean, you know, I'm sure there's a little <laughs> bit of back and forth, but I think you you give the landowner leeway a lot of times to make a lot yeah. of the decisions. But and then the the hunter management programs in Wyoming, you actually have to go online before sometime in early July and apply like in a second draw, and it validates you have it. It'll populate your field or your profile to say, oh, you have this tag. This tag is good on this HMA or this HMA. Do you want to apply for one of them? Sure. Okay. So you so, only yeah. get to choose one <clears throat> if there's multiple in your That area. I don't know, Jace. Yeah, a, I'm not sure but, about that. But anyhow, you, it's not like people can go apply if they don't have a valid yeah, tag. Yeah, it's just a very intuitive system. And I think what I like most about the hunter management area is that I wish would be adopted like in Montana is it provides a high level of accountability because yep. when you apply for a hunter management area, you're applying for certain dates often. I mean, sometimes it's the whole season, but it could be certain dates and you enter all of your information. So they have the information of your pickup and who's going to be with you. And like you're held accountable. If something happens on that property, they can cross check and be like, Oh, these are the people who had access those days. Sure. And so at, as far as, because one of the big issues with private landowners allowing access is hunter behavior, just yep. like being jerks on their land. Mm -hmm. And that just gives like another layer of accountability, which seems like a great idea. Yeah. Um, it, to, you know, to, to incentivize landowners to sign up for these programs. Yeah. Because, you know, if you just have who knows, who knows yeah. could be out there just doing whatever. It's just, I think that's a great part of their system. Yeah. Every state we talk to, Funding is always an issue, but beyond funding, the number one problem they have is hunter behavior. Landowners end up with some knothead who does something bad. We've all seen it. We've all heard about it. And the land, there's no amount of money you can get to get a landowner back in a program. If someone left the gate open and, you know, all the cows got out on the county road or out on the state highway or something it just yeah. or someone tears down a fan the list goes on and on and so regardless of where these programs are located for me i just hope hunters respect these landowners and the fact that they're in this program or these programs and they don't be a jerk yeah um but then where montana has it figured out is the funding so Yes. A significant portion of hunting license sales, I believe it's, and this is a little bit dated, but $4.1 million in hunting license sales went to block management in Montana. And then they, and an additional $1.4 million from Pittman Robertson funds, so the excise taxes on guns and ammo, also went to that. So over, you know, $5.5 million basically. Yep. And just into block management. Yep. In 2019, I did find the number. Montana paid landowners six mil, little over six million dollars under the block management program. Right, yeah, and then there is a bill currently. I believe it sounds like it's going to pass if it didn't already to increase the cap uh, payment to block management to landowners right. participating in block management, which is another good thing. Um, but I think what I think one of our frustrations that we've noted in Montana is the quality of habitat that is enrolled often so there's examples where there's you know 10 20 30,000 acres of just stubble field or you know like a, it might be in grain one year and then out you know rotating through the um crop but which 
can be wildlife habitat sometimes, yeah. but it is, um, and I think sometimes there's too much emphasis placed on acreage instead of quality. And so <laughs> what I would love to see is some way to like, and I don't think, and this is interesting because Wyoming didn't really do this either of like having some sort of ranking system where you like, in, or uh, you place quality over quantity. So like there's a lot of properties that might only be, 300 acres, but they have elk that frequent them or, you know, whatever. And then there's 20,000 acres that one antelope is going to pass through, you know, once that year. And so how do you try to, how do you quantify that quality of habitat that's being provided? And then try to incentivize the, those landowners who have that quality habitat to sign up. And so that's like, to me, the, the big questions on how you, develop the perfect access program or like, you know, how do we get those premium properties? I don't know. But so that's what I'm curious if people have ideas of, I mean, money is the big one. Money. (laughs) Give give them more money. (laughs) So, (laughs) but Montana has a unique formula of how we pay landowners. Also we pay them per hunter day. Yeah. Whereas in Wyoming, they just say, all right, for the season, here's your rules that you want, blah, blah, blah. Here's what we'll pay you. They, they strike a deal. So here's what where the criticism in Montana comes of to the fact that we only get about one acre per dollar, whereas Wyoming gets two and a half acres per dollar, is we have a ton of upland bird habitat enrolled in Montana, which is good if you're an upland bird hunter. Right. Um, but upland bird hunters, when you talk to them, they're like, oh, yeah, I hunted four different properties this week or this day. You know, I went and did this in the morning. We plowed through that one. Mm-hmm. And then we we're by 11 o'clock, we were over here. By 2 o'clock, we were over here. And we wrapped up over here. We paid for four hunter days for someone who only hunted one day. Yeah. And so that raises the cost of what we pay across the board in Montana. Well, then so it's yeah, a formula it, thing. Yeah, and it's hard to value. Like, so what's the value of an upland bird hunter you know, joy on that property or whatever versus an elk hunter. And I mean, the prices of the licenses go to show that people value monetarily, like a non-resident pays a lot of money for an elk tag in Montana versus an upland bird, you know, season license. And so that's where it's just like, if there was a way to shift the pool of money to try to find, because access to elk in Montana is one of our biggest issues. If yeah, Yeah. And so like, there's there's so many private land sanctuaries where elk are holding up, and it's like how, I mean, to me, if we really worked on block management, like that could be one of the main solutions to getting access to those elk. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think everybody, nobody has like the perfect answer, but I think there's things to work at. More money is a big one, yep. and then I think also providing landowners more tools to have um, a say in what happens on their property. More hunter days doesn't necessarily mean higher quality hunting. Like if you let yeah. everybody go yeah. out there, they, they're just going to push the elk off the property versus, yep. and and not to say, so Montana does have like levels of block management where you can yep. restrict hunter days, but you're not really, nece- you're not really incentivized monetarily to right. restrict hunter days. Yep. So if you're, if you're just wanting to make more money, it's like, yeah, knock yourself out. As many people go out there as <laughs> you want. And so it's like, and I don't know. It seems think, like, it seems like those type twos that were, ta- if that's what you're talking about, seemed to like, in my experience, maybe there's 
I'm wrong, but seem to be a little bit better properties like some of the time like very often yeah and And so and that's the thing it's like the best hunting i have ever had in my entire life was on a block management area that had restricted access i mean you know or like Mm -hmm. it didn't let every hunter you had to like not apply but you had to call in see you you had to contact the landowner and but i think the way that the system is currently set up most landowners are incentivized to just go the type one router the sign yeah. in box yeah totally where you just have your permission slips as many people want to enter a permission slip a day yeah. you can you can do that um so i i wish that there was and i don't know how you would do this i would obviously take a ton of work but to create like different ranking systems yeah to, totally to pay landowners uh, you know their fair like what quality they're providing rather than quantity both acreage like worry less about acreage more about the habit Habitat. the wildlife that it's providing access to and worry less about hunter days and more about the quality of that hunter day but those are both subjective terms so yeah. it's ripe for corruption too because <laughs> yeah. then people are like you know it's just like oh well, my friend over here you know yeah. has, has the best hunting you know and stuff changes seasonally it changes day to day uh you know like Crop rotations in different fields on private land are going to change what the wildlife are doing. So it's like yeah. it's extremely difficult. But I think that there could be an attempt made to to somehow use quality quality as a metric, it's, and that's what I would love to see. And I think just brainstorming about that is yeah, it's cool that Wyoming. Do, it sounds like Wyoming does do something like that, where they're you know if they get more money from elk, if I'm understanding you right, like elk sale license sales then they're gonna look for more more properties with that habitat so that could be a way of doing it just talking with their neighbors <laughs> right yeah. and right. i think you you'd probably have to develop some sort of like metric though like some there you have to met that's the, that's why everyone goes to 100 days and to acreage because yeah. it's a very easy it's a it's a easily measured metric right and yeah so the the other thing now I can't remember if this is still the case it was it created such a stink in 2015 I can't remember if they changed it or not but previously Montana's block management program you it did not grant you access to adjacent public lands right that they changed so, that recently right or, I don't know if they changed or it maybe or not. not not universally but I think I know on some of the properties it it does okay. But, Whereas Wyoming, they focus on that. Right. How much public land can you get us access to? So of their 2.6 million enrolled, eight point, or 850,000 of that is just public lands that are now no longer landlocked. Right. So Montana does not focus on that, to my understanding, to the point where I believe it was 2015 was when the report came out and it was a big storm. Like, what do you mean I can't access those adjacent state or federal lands by going through a block management property. They're like, no, you can't. So I don't know if that's changed or not. Yeah, and that's another example from Idaho where they do focus on that. Right. From what I understand in Idaho, <clears throat> that was, they placed a heavy value on allowing or, you know, opening up access to publicly or public land that's inaccessible. Yeah. And so that's another cool example from Idaho. Um, another thing I'd like to see in this hypothetical I- ideal system is – the people, the employees who are maintaining the the relationships with the private landowners, I would love it for them to be that be like a 
highly valued position yes. within the department, like a highly paid position. And you recruit people who are really good at it because I've heard horror stories where you have some college kid who doesn't know anything. Mm-hmm. They're not, you know, and I'm, I shouldn't say like, you know, some guy from California. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't know any Montana values? No. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's like people that don't know how to communicate with a landowner and then they, they just, you know, say something stupid or they, and like that could be the end of it. Like, you know, it, it's, the property's closed down because something stupid was said or they made a dumb decision. And so that's the thing that I've, that in Arizona watching Wade work with those landowners, like what a great, like, example. Wade is this so invested in maintaining relationships with these landowners and like just talking with them openly, telling them exactly what's going to happen. Like, here's the options. Like we can go this way, we can go that way. And just having those like open communications is so valuable. And I think a lot of that again comes to money. So like funding that position well and recruiting for it and making it a, a highly sought after position. So that's another one in my hypothetical thing. I'm, what do you guys got? I want to hear some ideas. Okay. I, I want to throw one out there that always yeah. surprises me. Kansas has, I think at one time, had 3 million acres of whitetail ground enrolled in the walk-in hunting access program. That's impressive. And it was some really good ground. But like it said, you park here and you walk. Kansas was one of those places where if you shot a deer... A whitetail, you might be packing it out on your back. Yeah. But landowners didn't want to deal with the headache of, you know, vehicles driving, ATVs, all this other stuff. And so Kansas was able and still has a very robust walk-in hunting program just because they said, you know what, hunters, you're here as their guest. This is what you're going to do. And you look at the Wyoming walk-in hunting program, you drive by them and you see like two rigs is all. It's like, man, there's 20,000 acres there and there's only two rigs in the parking lot? Okay. Good for those guys. Yeah. So I I think the walk-in hunting part of it has been the easiest solution for a lot of the landowners who were concerned about these things. Chase? Chase wants wants more waterfall properties. (laughs) That would be pretty sweet. Yeah. You've done some waterfowl hunting on block managing areas. Would you say that it's been good? Some of those set up really well for a couple years. I've done the Montana crane hunting and there's a block management property that, that I just learned this last year talking to someone at FWP was this block management property is where they do all their aerial surveys and they get their whole quota for the whole district just on this one property. So that was really cool to learn about. And it had some great opportunity to hunt out there. But um, did you see any deer or elk walking around out there? Well, that was the cool thing, <laughs> and I have phone scope. I might have phone phone scope video of this. But the, out in the field, I had there was hundreds of cranes. There was white-tailed deer, pronghorn, and uh, Canada geese all just intermingling in this big field. It was it was pretty spectacular to see, actually. Very was, productive. Was it, was it type one or type two block management? This is type one. Type one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's. That's cool. I don't have that experience very often. I don't have any critiques other than like what we've what we've been talking about is like my experience has been, you know, I, I, I use these BMAs a lot during antelope season, like archery antelope season. Mm-hmm. And so like 
that time of the year, they are like, I've had some good success getting in close, seeing animals. But then like, once you come to rifle season, um, it's just, it's tough to find critters on those type ones. And so I guess my, my suggestion would be to talk with our neighbors in Wyoming and like, let's fund the spots that have the best wildlife habitat. And I mean, like, as we've discussed, there's really no perfect way of doing it, but like, yeah, let's get rid of some of those grain fields and like find properties that have like river bottom or like yeah. something sweet. Yeah. And for, I think for ungulates rather than, you know, upland. <laughs> yeah. No. And I love, I mean, don't get me wrong. Love upland bird hunting. Yep. But again, it's just like when you look at the, the dollar amounts, if yeah. we're going to like fund it appropriately, like we should probably try to shift it towards more elk habitat. Yeah. But I think the one thing, you know, if it is too hard to find these metrics to measure that quality of habitat, the one that can for sure be done is restricting hunters to the property like Wyoming does with the hunter management areas where you have a secondary draw and you don't punish the landowner for doing that. So rather than, you know, saying like, well, you're only going to get paid, you know, X dollar amount for each hunter. It's like, like this, I don't know, like, you know, just have a fixed amount or something like we have, like collectively have a, a peer group so that, you know, try to get rid of any corruption potential, but you have like a group of FWP individuals or, you know, whatever state agency look at the property, assess, like, let's try to put a, you know, accurate dollar amount on this. And then you decide what is the appropriate number of hundred days that can be on here without ruining it, Mm -hmm. without pressuring all the animals off. Because that's the thing, like you have, there are some great quality properties that are type ones and then, like you said, once the rifles start shooting, they're gone. Yeah, totally. This is done. So, yeah, I don't know. I think that's, like, a great opportunity to improve it. So yeah. you're saying put some management in block management? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I, you got to give them credit, though. Like, because that's what, you know, I, just growing up in Montana, you know, I, ha- I have some gripes with block management. But when you start oh. comparing it to every other state, it's like, yeah. <laughs> from every metric, they are ahead. Like, even... You know, it might be some lesser quality habitat, but 7.1 million acres is a lot of acres. Yeah. yeah, That's a lot of acres of enrolled land. Some people are just happy to go walk around a grain field, not shoot a deer or an elk. <laughs> yeah, no, I, hey, I've shot, I've shot deer and antelope in grain fields. So, but it's just like, you know, there's, there's a little bit of frustration, you know, when you're like, man, does, that's a lot of acreage. That's, you know, does that acreage take away from the opportunity of having other lands? lands being enrolled yeah anecdotally yes yes. and i I, i'm sure that fwp representatives would have a great rebuttal (laughs) but i have heard stories of people being denied uh you know enrollment that had pretty great habitat for whitetails because it was small acreage Mm. and you know then you see twenty thousand acres of stubble enrolled so and i and that's 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 where that chasing those numbers Chasing acreage in hundred days. I wish that it would be less, you know. Yeah. Like all these things, I, every program can always be better. Right. You think about, okay, Montana has 7 million acres enrolled. Think of how many hundred days that hosts. And if we didn't have that, think about how crowded the public land would be. Yeah. 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 yeah and that's, I mean, so. and especially when you, when you look at things like elk in Montana too, it's just like, yeah, we have a decent amount of public land, but once, like rifle season especially, once that starts, the elk are 
so stacked on private land that access to them is just such an issue. And so what a great opportunity to, you know, improve the system and get access to those elk and hopefully have it be a win-win situation for both hunters and landowners. Yeah. I'd like to take all the pluses of Montana, all the pluses of Wyoming and have every state adopt the same program, but that's exactly. not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. I think those two examples, a little bit of Idaho, a <laughs> little bit of Arizona sprinkled in and call, I shouldn't, Colorado has a pretty good program and I just, I, I didn't give it the time it deserved to understand the whole thing, but, um, and same with Utah, but just focus on the stuff I know, I guess. Yeah. If you <laughs> want to learn more about that, there's the Google machine. The Google uh, machine. If I just run out of time, man. <laughs> I, I want to just reiterate again. If you do hunt one of these properties, don't be a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a jerk, I hope someone kicks your ass. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I was going to say the For same sure. thing before he got off. I was like, I'll whoop that ass. If I see somebody. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah, thanks guys for having this discussion. I think uh, that I want I think we can continue brainstorming on this and like come up with different <laughs> ideas. I'd be curious what other people like if people listening have good ideas on the ideal access program, put them in the comments. Let us know. Yeah. I'd be curious and, to know. And the reason I think it's so important to discuss this is two thirds of Montana is private, one third public. Kind of mirrors the country. Two thirds of the United States is private, one third public. Mm-hmm. And we're always trying to create more access, more public access. Okay, how do I get to that landlocked piece? Or how do I just solve this public land issue? But where we're really losing our access is in the private land sector. And when those people lose their access, they are the ones now who, well, I guess I'm going to go fight with the crowd over on the WMA or over on the Forest Service or whatever. So these state land programs are absolutely critical if we're going to spread hunting pressure out to more places. For sure. Great closing thoughts. Sweet. Thanks, guys. See ya. See ya.